Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. Good evening, everyone. It is good to be in the house of the Lord or wherever you are tonight, if you're in your car or in your living room. I pray that you had a wonderful summer day, and uh, I'm looking forward to spending some time with you tonight. And uh, I just um, know that as time goes by and we're getting more and more accustomed to the changes that are going on because of COVID-19, that we never get used to the change of not um, having uh, deep fellowship with Christ. And that can happen in our closet, that can happen anywhere. But we remain, need to remain to have fellowship with him in a very uh, committed way, in a very intimate way. But tonight, I'd like to just uh, spend a few minutes with you. I, I want to make one little announcement before I start. I've had a number of people ask me a question. I've shared with you uh, a couple weeks ago that I was near completion with uh, my book. Uh, and it is now, praise God, after a couple years of work on it, it is on Amazon, and the title is Looking Past Suffering. And uh, you can look at, look at it for, through the title or through my name. Uh, I'm just very excited about it, and I just wanted to let everybody know that it is available now. But tonight, I, before I start, I'd like to um, just have a word of prayer with you, invite the presence of God into uh, this message and to whatever place you are or in this place where I am. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful for your love, and we're grateful especially for your patience, your long-suffering, your kindness. But tonight, Lord, we ask that you would speak to us as a father would to his child. Speak to us in that loving way that will correct us and guide us and lead us in a path that will lead us closer to heaven and to the direction that you want us to go. I'm thankful for the word of God, Lord, because it gives me direction, admonition, and correction. And I pray tonight that all three of those things would be present in the words that you've given me to say. Anoint my mind that I can receive those thoughts that you would send from heaven to my heart and be able to deliver them in a way that people can understand. I'll give you all the praise. I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I, I did pick a title for this topic tonight. And uh, it's called, There Is No Neutral Zone. And I'll, I, it's, with all of the uh, news that's pouring over our news media, that's causing anxiety, that's causing concern, and as we see our country start to unravel a little bit, sometimes we find a place of neutrality away from, from the chaos. But tonight I want to tell you there's no neutral zone. And as we get into the word tonight, I think you'll be able to understand why I say that. I want to just read a short portion of scripture from, and this wasn't in my notes. Uh, the Lord sort of put this on my mind just before I came up. From Esther, the fourth chapter, in verse 13. Now, <laughs> We know that the wicked man named Haman, Haman in Esther had deceived King Ahasuerus into making a decree whereby he might eliminate all the Jewish population. 
And uh, at this point in the scripture, Mordecai is trying to make Esther aware of what is about to happen with this decree that was passed by King Ahasuerus. And in verse 13, it says this, And Mordecai told them to answer Esther, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me. Neither eat nor drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. There is no neutral zone. I'm thinking about how Esther must have felt realizing that she was being put on the spot. She was the one that was going to walk before King Ahasuerus, knowing that if he did not extend his scepter to her, that she would die. She was walking by faith, believing that God would open the door for her to intercede for her people. And sometimes we need to put our own lives on the line for our faith and for the work of God. I'm reading from 1 Thessalonians, the fifth chapter. Paul is writing to this church. In verse one, he says, Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You all are all the sons of the light and the sons of the day. We do not belong to the night to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation is a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. I don't need to tell you tonight that we are in the middle of a spiritual war zone. Some may not even be aware of their enemy, 
and his subversiveness. But we do have an enemy. We know who the enemy is. We know what realm he operates in. He dwells in darkness. His purpose is to conquer and destroy the human soul. That war zone started when an angel called Lucifer, also called Satan, decided in his pride that he wanted to be equal with God. In other words, he did not want to submit to authority. He wanted to ride above authority. He wanted to be like God, not responsible to any law. Well, that, that attitude and his actions resulted in God throwing Satan down to earth. Now, that act is described in our Bible in Isaiah the ch chapter 14, and I'm going to be reading from verse 11 to verse 15. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you, and worms cover you. How have you fallen from heaven, O morning star, son of the dawn? You have been cast down to the earth. You, who once laid low the nations, you said in your heart, I will ascend to the heaven. I will raise my throne above all the stars of God. I will sit enthroned on the Mount of Assembly, on the utmost heights of the sacred mountain. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the grave, to the depths of the pit. Now, in just two verses that I've read, if you were to count them, you will find the words, I will, mentioned five times. He says those words together, I will. In other words, I am going to do what I want to do regardless of God's direction or plan for my life. Now, there's two sides to this spiritual conflict we're involved in. There's a side of darkness, which is Satan's side, and there's a side, uh, the, there's a side of light, which is, of course, is God's side. Satan's side is called the kingdom of darkness, and God's side is called the kingdom of light. Now, you have to live in one of those two kingdoms. There are only two kingdoms. You are either a member of one or the other. There is no neutral zone. Either you tonight are living in darkness or you're living in light. Now, in Isaiah, the 60th chapter, verse 2, it says this. See... Darkness covers the earth, and thick darkness is over the peoples. But the Lord rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Notice that darkness covers the earth. Thick darkness is over all the people. You know, I, I have to admit, sometimes I'm frustrated because it seems like I can see some things so clearly and I, I get frustrated when I'm trying to explain something to someone and it's like they can't see it. 
Well, more than likely, in a spiritual sense, they can't because they're living in darkness. In a lighted room, it's easier to see things than, of course, in a dark room. But Christ came that we might have light. In Christ was the light of men. So if I say this, without Christ, there's no light. Without that revelation of deity or God incarnate in flesh, people cannot have the correct vision. That's why the Bible says, unless you believe that I am he, you'll die in your sins. Or in other words, you'll die in darkness. Now, in Acts the 26th chapter, in verse 18, we read this verse. To open their eyes, and this is the reason that Christ came, to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That was the reason for the incarnation. Remember one of the first things that God created? And God said, let there be light. Now notice that in Genesis it says there's a great big distinction between light and darkness. He called darkness the night and light the day. Now we're the children of the day. We're not the children of the night. We're the children of the light. But there is a direct distinction between darkness and light. Now Satan does have the ability to mimic light and to deceive. He tries to convince others into thinking that he himself is the light. And of course, during the tribulation period, he will try to convince people in the world that he is the Messiah, that he's the one that's come to rule the earth. And he will deceive many, many people. But the children of the light will not be deceived because light overpowers the deception of darkness. That's why even though we're separate from the church a little bit more than we're used to, we must continue to walk in light, the light of revelation that comes from the word of God. Now, 2 Corinthians, the 11th chapter, verse 14 says, Paul writing, he writes, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. And then Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, he says this to this church. He says in Ephesians 6 and 12, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, we can try to fight this fight in the physical realm, but we'll never succeed because it's really a spiritual battle. You aren't going to win it with sticks and stones and guns and clubs and swords. The only way you're gonna win a spiritual battle is through faith and the word of God and through the blood of Christ. That's why we must stand firm in the truth. When I go back and look at how man fell in the beginning, when we go back to the first sin that was ever committed 
It was committed in a perfect place. It was committed in a garden where no sin had been committed by mankind. But sin was in the garden. Darkness was in the garden in the form of Lucifer or Satan. Now Satan, according to scripture in Genesis, was took on himself the form of a serpent. And he uh, employed his most often used weapon to convince Eve to disobey God. Now, I don't want people to take this wrong, but in, because everybody's so touchy-feely about how we look at people, everybody's equal, everybody's got this, don't, don't try to be biased, all this stuff, but man was placed over the woman in the beginning. He was to watch over his woman and protect her The head of every woman is man, and the head of every man is Christ. So the man bears responsibility. It doesn't make him greater than the woman. It only bears witness that his responsibility is to the woman. Now the woman was with the man by a tree that was forbidden of of them to eat. And so Satan saw Eve looking at the tree and desiring the fruit. And this is where deception enters in. She hadn't partaken of sin. She was looking after sin, wondering about sin, lusting after sin. Every man is tempted, the Bible says, when they're drawn away by their own lust. Man would not have fallen, or woman would not have been deceived if she had not allowed her lust to draw her to a place where deception could be put upon her. You'll find in deception that there are half-truths, which make the statements that Satan oftentimes presents to people a little bit more believable. In other words, there's some truth and a little lie. But... The truth is not a truth if there's a lie in it. The truth is the truth when there's no deception. He brought deception to the woman who was lusting after that which was forbidden. I want to read this to you, uh, the account. It says, now the serpent, I'm in Genesis 1, uh, chapter 6. No, no, I'm not in chapter 1. Oh, Genesis 3, chapter 1 through 6. Here we are. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Yea, hath God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden. And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said... You shall not eat of it. She was correct, but then she errs. Because she adds something that God did not say to her comment, which allows Satan to understand that she's not really informed as good as she should be. You shall not eat of it. And then she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. God never said that. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. When the devil sees that you're not sure of the truth, he will will stand against it. 
For God doth know that in the day you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. See, that was his goal, and that caused him to get thrown out of heaven because he wanted to be like God. He wanted man to fall in the same manner that he had fallen. He said, you'll know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. And that was the beginning of the realm of darkness on earth, because man chose to enter into darkness than to live in the light. Now the devil challenges the word of God with suspicion. You know, God isn't really concerned about you. He wants to keep you in bondage. He wants you to be his slave. He knows that if you eat this fruit, you'll, be, you'll benefit from it, so he's trying to keep you away from it. And the devil says the same thing about God. God. God doesn't really want you to be happy. He wants you to be his servant, and he wants to control you. But Jesus said, you know what, that's not it at all. I've come that you might have life. I want you to have true life and life more abundantly. I want to restore the fellowship that you lost. Satan says you're living in bondage. But God says, no, I brought you life. Now this act of disobedience caused God to banish Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. Utopia was lost. A place where there was no death, no suffering, no tears. It was all lost because man chose to walk in darkness instead of light. Now, I, I'd mentioned this before. I'll read that scripture and how there's, there's such a division between the realm of darkness and the realm of light. That even in creation, God said, let there be, and I'm reading from verse one of chapter one of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw the light was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Now, taking that into consideration, we jump back into the book of Thessalonians and go back to chapter five and verse five, and we read that verse. You are the sons of the light and the sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. We don't belong to that. We shouldn't, we shouldn't be part of the darkness. And then Peter, in the second chapter of his book, 1 Peter, 1 Peter 2 and 9, he says this, but you are a chosen generation. You're a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar, or it could be translated, a purchased people that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. 
How do we battle the darkness that tries to plague us? We're surrounded by darkness. More than ever before, more than any time in my entire life, it seems that I'm encompassed with darkness and evil seems to be present everywhere. Abominations that, that go beyond imagination are happening all around us. And we see that the cadence of sin tearing the world apart. How do I handle that? How do I fight the darkness? Paul's writing to Timothy. One of the last things he wrote to Timothy before he died. In the presence of God, I'm in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. Or in verse 1, I'm sorry. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, he says this, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct. Rebuke and encourage with great patience and careful instruction for the time will come, and friend, I believe it's arrived, for the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears from the truth and turn aside the myths. But you... Keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. He goes on to write, for I am already being poured out like a drink offering. He wrote this just about a month or two before he he died, before he was beheaded, before he was martyred. So the words that he's writing carry a lot of, of strength with them. For I'm ready, already being poured out like a drink offering and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Now, I'm going to branch off a little bit because I'm going to just for a moment break away and look at something that's negative because Jesus in his remarks to the disciples mentioned that in the last days there would be one obvious sign that would involve the church. You know, we've got the stress of nations and wars and rumors of wars, but there would be a a sign in the church as well that the end time was was nearing. It said many would be offended and they would leave and they'd they'd be overwhelmed and they would walk away. Now, when I get to verse nine, notice what it says. Do your best to come to me quickly. For Demas, 
Demas was a very close friend, and I'm gonna show you some scriptures that Demas was very heavily involved in the ministry of Christ and a partner with Paul in some of his work in, in the Gentile churches. For Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful for me in the ministry. I sent Tychius to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander, the metal worker, did me great harm, deal, a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he's done. You too, now notice this, you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Be on guard against those who oppose the message that was delivered. At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everybody deserted me. May it not be held against them, but the Lord stood at my side and he gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the mouth of the lion. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his kingdom, heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. One of the things that I'd like to point out is that sometimes people that are close to you let you down. And when you're really counting on them the most, they will walk away. Paul was just about at the end of his ministry. And one of the men that was closest to him in his ministry, Demas, decided that he loved the world more than he loved God, and he left Paul's side. And then others left, and he was all alone. But Paul says, you know what, even when everybody deserts me, even when everything is against me, God stands by my side, and he will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Friend, it does not matter how many people fall around you. You can stand if you're standing on the truth. If you're proclaiming truth and walking in the light as God gave you the light, the light, you can be delivered from the mouth of the lion. Now, I, when I saw that in Scripture years ago, I made the correlation between the lion and Satan being like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Well, when you devour... You use your mouth to devour, right? A lion eats its prey with its mouth. Paul said, I was delivered from the mouth of the lion. You might get bit, but you won't get it. How do you like that? Eight. I, I just sort of threw that in there to be a little brevity. You might get bit, but God will deliver you from the mouth of the lion. Let me ask you a question. What are you looking for in your walk for God? Think a minute. What, what is it that you're really wanting to get out of your walk with God? Is it 
a place of recognition? To be noticed? Or is it a place of denial or submission? Is it a cross to carry and a name to bear? Or is it the fruit of blessings minus the rejection and the struggles of battle? Let me read that again. I don't know if you got everything that I just said. Are you looking to be recognized, elevated, or are you denying yourself and humbling yourself and taking the lower seat? Are you here to carry the cross of Christ? Are you here to bear the name of Jesus? Or are you here for the fruits of blessing without rejection and without the struggles that come with battle? It will determine how successful your relationship with God is in what you're looking for. You know, those words that I just read were some of the last words that Paul ever penned in Scripture. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. Paul wrote that emotional plea from a prison cell in Rome. Actually, it was just a few weeks or months prior to his execution. We believe that Paul was imprisoned after the city of Rome was torched, and they blamed the Christians for that, and all of a sudden the popularity of Christianity went down the tube, and all of a sudden Christians were despised. And you know what? There's coming a day when churches will burn and Christians will be despised because darkness will hate the light and anything that represents light will be torn down. They may tear down statues, but eventually they'll come to tear down churches. That's what happened. The fire of Rome in Rome was blamed on the Christian and their popularity was lost and they began to martyr Christians. And people that lived in Rome feared for their life. And that was about between 61 and 63 AD. Now, do we have evidence that Demas was close to Christ or to Paul? I go back and I look in the scripture Paul mentions him in many of his closings in his epistles. Ephesus, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you as do Mark, Aristocharis, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. He places Demas alongside Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke in the book of Acts. Demas enjoyed such a privilege in his ministry to share in the work of one so powerful and anointed as Paul, the apostle. He's characterized as my fellow worker, which that word fellow in the Greek means, I I could try to say the Greek word, but I I murder it. I'm just going to give you the definition of the Greek word. One who works, labors, toils together with another, In other words, someone that's alongside someone carrying the load of responsibility. 
Demas was not just a person that was along for the ride. Demas was not just a curious bystander. He was actively involved in the work and the ministry of the Lord. He was a pillar in the church. He was, his ministry would have been largely evangelistic in nature. But something happened to Demas that he left the light of his calling and was swayed over to the things of the world and he walked from light into darkness. I find another portion in Colossians, the fourth chapter in verse 10 through 14. It says, Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. So here we have another example. Luke is working with Demas. Brother Kylie, why, why are you belaboring this thought? I'm talking to some people tonight that have been serving God for 20, 30, maybe 40, 40 years. I don't want you to think for one second that you've made it home yet. Just because you've invested your time and your effort and your, your work and your finances to the work of God, it doesn't mean that you cannot stray from the realm of light into a realm of darkness and not find possibly an easy way back. I want to tell you the Lord is standing with the church tonight. We do not stand alone. Let me just give you um, one more example that I, I feel is really important. I, I look at one of the major characters in Scripture, and matter of fact, his, the throne of Christ was built upon the throne of David. And David was a man after God's own heart. The scripture says that. And Dave, David had an intimate relationship with God, but David made mistakes. David sometimes wavered because he lost his focus. When he took his focus off the ministry of God and what God was directing him to do, David would always seem to fall into trouble. We saw that with Bathsheba. He should have been out fighting the battle, but he stayed home, and because he wasn't fighting where he should be, he started to see things he shouldn't have seen. He saw Bathsheba, he committed adultery with her, he had her husband killed. Terrible testimony, but it would have never happened if he would have stayed in the place that God put him. Satan was about to provoke David to do something that God had forbid him to do. Just like Satan tried to provoke Eve to do something that she shouldn't have done. I'm reading from 1 Chronicles, the 21st chapter. Satan rose up against Israel and incited David to take a census of Israel. God never wanted his kings to number the people because it would give them a false sense of strength. David said to Joab and to the commanders of the troops, go and count the Israelites from Beersheba to Dan, then report back to me that I may know how many there are. 
I have my own feelings about Joab. I think Joab was the kind of friend that I'd like to have. Joab was faithful, and he told David what, what he thought was right, and he stood by David's side and watched over him as a friend would. But Joab replied, May the Lord multiply his troops a hundred times over my lord the king. Are they not all my lord's subjects? Why does my lord want to do this? Why should he bring guilt on Israel? Don't do this, David. Don't count. You know it's wrong. But sometimes when you enter into darkness through the temptations of, of Satan, you don't see clearly. The king's word, however, overruled Joab. So Joab left and went throughout Israel and then came back to Jerusalem. Joab reported the number of the fighting men to David. Now notice the size of this fighting, fighting army. In all Israel, there were 1,100,000 men who could handle a sword including 470,000 in Judah, 1,470,000 in his realm that could fight. 1,470,000 people, soldiers. Now, the reason that God didn't want David or his kings to number the people, it would give them a false sense of security and they would put strength in their own ability and not in God's provision and his ability. Now Joab, but Joab did not include Levi and Benjamin in the numbering because the king's command was repulsive to him. This command was also evil in the sight of God, so he punished Israel. Do you realize this, the position that David put Joab in? He had him do something that, that was wrong. But Joab submitted himself to David, even when David was wrong. But the command was also evil in the sight of God, so God began to punish Israel. Then David said to God, Oh, I've sinned greatly by doing this. Now, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. You know, repentance is a very important thing in your walk for God because repentance takes the covering of darkness off of your eyes and allows you to see light. But see, the world doesn't really want to talk about repentance much. The churches oftentimes escape repentance, just confess and believe you don't need to repent. But when a person truly repents, it takes the covering of darkness off so they, that they can see the elements of revelation, of truth that are shown through God's word. That's why Paul, uh, Peter preached in Acts, the second chapter, that the first thing you've got to do in salvation is you've got to repent. Don't even confess. Just repent about your actions, about your sin. The Lord said to Gad, David's seer, go, tell, go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. Now, I, I'm thinking about the country that I live in, 
It was found on, on God, the principles of God. It was established with, with morality. It was part of our makeup and our structure. God was the, the, the strength of our country, but all of a sudden, people started to make decisions. The leadership began to make decisions to take away prayer, to take the name of God out of everything, to remove the Ten Commandments from the courthouses. And they tried to elevate their own revelations that they had received through darkness above the light of God. They tried to put power in their own ability. And I can't help but think that sometimes when we see the plagues that we're seeing, like COVID-19, that God is sending a similar wake-up call to our nation. Who bears the responsibility for the death that comes through judgment? Those who have disobeyed. Those who have pushed God aside. Those that have torn down his laws and his principles and precepts from the teaching in our schools that have taught our children not to believe in God and told them that they don't need to pray or they don't have to live a moral life. Who bears the responsibility for the judgments that come down from heaven upon the earth? It is the guilty, not the innocent. This is what the Lord says. Gad said to David, take your choice. Three years of famine, three months of being swept away before your enemies with their swords overtaking you, or three days of the sword of the Lord, days of plague in the land, with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. Now then decide how I should answer the one who sent me. Three things. You can be overtaken by your enemies. You can have famine in the land. Or you, can, or you can live under the plague that I will send through the land. I can't help but recognize that the COVID-19 plague has been sent through all the earth because the earth on a whole has turned its back on God. And I'm not saying that this is absolutely true, but it seems to fit into the picture very well. David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let me fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But not, do not let me fall into the hands of men. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel, and 70,000 men of Israel fell dead. And God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was going to do so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the people, enough, withdraw your sword. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a drawn sword, and his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders, clothed in sackcloth, fell face down. David said to God, was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I'm the one who has sinned and done wrong. Oh, that it would be the leaders in our nation, those that have led our country and this world into depravity and allowed sin to be proclaimed openly. Oh, if the leaders of our nation could repent, if they could call out to God and ask for mercy, what 
and how could the world be affected by the travesties that are plaguing it now? If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, I shall hear from heaven and heal their land. But I don't hear on the news about people praying in mass numbers. I don't see our leaders bowing their knees at their chairs in our Senate, in our House of Representatives. If at least, in the very least, I see very few trying to stand up as the three Hebrew children against all the the evil of the land for God. Then the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite. You want to stop the ravages of sin and the penalty of sin and the plagues that come against us? The very first place you should go is to the altar. So David went up in obedience to the word that Gad had spoken in the name of the Lord. While Aruna was threshing wheat, he turned and saw the angel. His four sons who were with him hid themselves. Then David approached, and when Aruna looked and saw him, he, he left the threshing floor and bowed down before David with his face to the ground. David said to him, Let me have the sight of your threshing floor so I can build an altar to the Lord that the plague of the people may be stopped. Sell it to me at the full price. Runa said to David, take it. Let my Lord the king do whatever pleases him. Look, I will give the oxen for the burnt offerings, the threshing sledges for the wood, and the wheat for the grain offering. I'll give you all this. But David, King David replied to Runa, no, I insist on paying the full price I will take for the Lord what is your I will not take for the Lord what is yours or sacrifice a burnt offering that costs me nothing. Repentance that costs you nothing is not worth much. A repentant heart and a changed life that it where there's not a sacrifice is not much of a change. So David paid Aruna 600 shekels of gold for the site. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. Divine revelation coming down from heaven. Fire fell upon the sacrifice and consumed it. You want the fire to fall upon your home or upon your congregation? Make sure that you've got an altar that costs you something. Make sure that you come with a broken and a contrite spirit. Make sure that you come confessing your sin and your error, not with excuses. After all this was done, verse 27 says, Then the Lord spoke to the angel, and he put his sword back into his sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite, 
he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the desert, and the altar of burnt offering were at that time in a place at Gibeon. But David could not go before to inquire of God because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. So even after this was all over, the plague was stopped through repentance and an altar. His, his seal was shown in the fire that fell from heaven upon the sacrifice. God had said, your sin is forgiven. But there were still the marks of disobedience that plagued David so much that he couldn't go up to where the ark of the Lord was because of his own fear at the price that was paid because of his sin. Seventy-some thousand people died because of arrogance, because people wanted to show the world how much they were in control. What are you going to hold on to in this battle that we're called to fight? Where are you going to put your trust? How are you going to continue to stand unless you stand with the Lord? Preach the word. Live the word. Read the word. And you'll find that when the darkness is enshrouding the places all around you, you'll have light in your dwelling because the blood of the door on the doorpost of your heart will keep evil from entering in. Lord, tonight, I feel very strongly about the words that you've given me to speak. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.